You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We're walking through the book of Esther. If you have your Bible, you can open to the book of Esther. Esther is uh, before Job in Psalms. The book of Psalms is roughly in the middle of your Bible, a pretty large little chunk of the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Right before that is the book of Job, and then right before that is the book of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, okay, just so you're finding it as you're looking along. By the way, if you're just on a Bible app, you just keep scrolling until you find E for Esther and click that, okay, that'll work as well on your phone um, to find Esther. The book of Esther was written um, uh, about uh, a time near the end Uh, of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Actually, the Jews had already begun to go back home. They had been conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, They had spent 70 years in captivity. They had been allowed to begin to go back home, yet there was a remnant still living um, in what was now the Persian Empire. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And so the Persians just kind of took their land and said, this is now our land. Um, And so the Persian Empire um, had set up shop, and, and we're reading the story of God's providential care uh, for the Jewish people. God had a a, a special relationship with the nation uh, of Israel, and that relationship began um, through a guy named Abram, right? God called Abram to leave um, where he he was living, where his father uh, had lived, uh, Ur of the Chaldees. He said, I want you to go to a place that I'll give you flowing with milk and honey. I want you to go to this land that I've promised to you and to your descendants. And Abraham, by faith, obeyed God. And that's kind of the story of Abraham's life. He, by faith, obeyed God. And God said, I will bless you. Unconditionally, I will bless you. It doesn't matter um, where you go, what you do, you will always be favored in my mind. It doesn't mean that all of his descendants were always doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that they weren't chastened at times, right? They just spent 70 years in captivity because they were wicked um, as a people. But even through that, God stayed faithful to his promise to Abraham. He brought them home, yet there was an immediate threat that was brewing uh, for the nation of Israel. There was going to be um, a challenge to God's plan to providentially protect them um, that's going to come right in line with what God is doing in the life of this lady named Esther. And what's going on so far in the book of Esther, we're now in Esther chapter 2, But what went on in the first chapter of Esther chapter 1 is that the king um, uh, at the time was a guy named Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus Ahasuerus had a queen who refused to come when called. Um, which, you know, whatever. Um, she didn't come when called, and so he ran her, ran her off. He said, I'm done with you. You will no longer be king, and in fact, or queen. In fact, he made a proclamation that went worldwide, we learned last week, to talk about how she didn't come when called and how that was a great offense to him and that all women should be subject to their husbands um, and that she was no longer queen. And he publicized, you know, he put out publicly um, this great uh, embarrassing scene for him because he had advisors who advised him to do so, probably because they were scared that their wives likewise would not come when called. Now we pick up in Esther chapter 2, and we're going to be introduced to the title character of the story, right? The person who, who the book is about ostensibly is Esther. And we pick up in Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 
1. And this is what it says. It says, After these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, the former queen, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins into a harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, um, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let them, their cosmetics be given, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king and he did so. So Vash, or Xerxes, uh, Asherus, same guy, by the way. Um, I, I used it interchangeably, randomly last week, and it got a little, little sketchy, okay? Um, but Asherus, I'll try to use the biblical name here. Asherus um, is kind of sitting around, and, and a, a period of time has passed, right? Sometimes you do something when you're mad. You make an impulsive decision when you're angry. And then you look back when you have a little bit of perspective, and you're like, I don't know if I handled that situation exactly like I should have. Or maybe you say, I know I handled that situation wrong. I did not do or say what I should have done. The problem is when King Ahasuerus looks back at how he handled his wife's disobedience in that moment, he had made a law, a decree um, that was uh, unchangeable, right? It was something that could not change. Um, and you see this in the book of Daniel, this unchangeable law of the, the Persians. Um, Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. The reason Daniel was thrown in the lion's den is because he prayed to God at his appointed time when Daniel chose to do that. And the reason that was such a big deal is because someone tricked the king at the time, Darius um, at the time, um, that, that if anyone would pray to anyone other than Darius and his gods, um, that they should be thrown into the lion's den. And, and Darius said, that sounds good. Um, but they knew Daniel would disobey. And when Daniel was scooped up in that arrest... Uh, Darius was grieved. He loved Daniel. Daniel was one of his closest, best advisors. And he's like, oh my goodness, this is terrible news. In fact, he wanted Daniel to be spared. God was gracious. But he had to throw him in the lion's den for a night because he had made a rash vow. Uh, Ahasuerus has done the same thing. He's made a rash vow. He's regretting maybe what he did. Remembers his wife. He's like, you know, she was a good-looking, pretty good wife all in all. And I just threw her away. She can't come see me anymore. She can't be a part of what I'm doing anymore. Uh, man, this is a terrible thing. So he's beginning to moat, beginning to groan, beginning to whine. The guys around him, his advisors, look at the situation and say, hey, we can solve this problem. You're looking for female companionship, right, king? We'll get you female companionship. And so they come up with a scheme to find the most attractive women in the Persian Empire. Now, this is like a serious empire. In fact, this is uh, most of the known world save Greece uh, at the time. And so it is a massive empire-wide search. There's 127 provinces, as we already know from earlier. And they go from city to city, town to town, scooping up every good-looking young unmarried woman. Every good-looking young unmarried woman is scooped up, brought back to where the king is, and put in a, in a, in a uh, harem, basically just put in a building um, where they're allowed to be together, all these women. By the way, that would be a disaster. Can you imagine, right? Like the cattiness of that place, just a disaster. Um, but he scoops them up, and he puts them all into this harem, and over a period of time, they're given cosmetics and special foods and diets and everything to make them look and be the most attractive. And then one by one, they're brought to the king 
for an evening to see whether or not they can please the king. I'm not going to get too detailed into how this works, but, but every woman who's in the harem has an appointed day to go see the king. And they're going to go and see the king, and at the end of that night, the king will either uh, say, yes, you're now my queen, or no, and, and then she'll be put in another harem for women that can't be married anywhere else. They're now concubines of him, and they just kind of live in blissful, like, by themselves, can't see their family, can't go home, have been defiled by the king, live the rest of their lives in, in shame. That was the story that was brought there. I want to tell you something about that plan. That is a wicked plan. Right? If your plan to fix your romantic dating issues is I'm going to kidnap roughly, like by force of law, force every woman that I find to be moderately to very attractive into a place, and then one by one force y'all to go and to spend a night with the king to see whether or not you please the king, right? If that's your plan, it's a wicked, wicked plan. Here's the deal with people, guys. People sometimes plan, scheme to do wickedness, right? There's wickedness in this world right now where we live. People are doing uh, very wicked things. And sometimes we think, how do people get to that? How do they get to the point where they're doing this bad thing or that bad thing? How is wickedness so prevalent in our society today? And the answer for that, the reason wickedness is so prevalent, is because there are people who literally sit around in scheme of ways to do wicked things. Or they come up with plans to uh, fulfill the darkest desires of their hearts, and they spend time scheming to do that. The, the king's advisors had a scheme in mind. They're like, this is a plan that we can execute. And it was absolutely wicked. The truth is the world was wicked then, back in like the early three, four hundreds BC. Uh, and the world is wicked now. There is a wickedness that has per pervaded that whole time period. And there are people who actively seek new and creative ways to do wicked things. They look for ways to be Wicked. So what do we do in that situation? Well, at some point, sometimes we're helpless in the midst of that situation. All of the women in the Persian Empire who were at the whims of whoever went out and gathered these women up, right? they were helpless in that situation, as we see picking up in verse 5. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of an uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when the many young women were gathered in Susa, citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in the charge of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics, her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, uh, and, and advanced her uh, and, and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, where she was from, that she was Jewish, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai would walk in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening 
to her. So we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. These are two main characters in this story, along with Ahasuerus, and a guy we'll learn later who's named Haman. Um, and, and Esther is there. She's picked up, scooped up, and Esther is the, the cousin of Mordecai. Mordecai, by the way, is given a genealogy that's noteworthy. If, if you go through this genealogy, you'll see some names that jump out to you um, in there. He's a Benjaminite, which means he's in the tribe of Benjamin, and he's of Kish, right? Uh, and, and if that doesn't help you, Saul was a Benjaminite of Kish. And so Saul, the first king in Israel, um, and Mordecai were directly related. They were close kins. They were in the same line walking down. That'll come to be a, a noteworthy fact later on. I just want to point it out now that Mordecai's family was an influential, prominent family. When the first people were taken, they took the best and the brightest, the most um, well-versed, well-spoken, well-educated royal families from Jerusalem. His family was taken in that first captivity. The very first, they didn't take poor, peasant, regular people. They took the best and the brightest. Uh, and so his family was in that first group that was scooped up and brought uh, over to Babylon. His whole life, he's only known living in captivity. Right? He, he's never known what it's like to be free, what it's like to be in Jerusalem, what it's like to be in the, in the broader um, world. He has only known what it's like to be a captive, an exile, living underneath foreign governments. That was the story of Mordecai. His, his uh, cousin Esther um, had a... Obviously, she was attractive. The Bible describes her as she, she had a, a nice form and she was lovely to look at. That's a good way to be described, right? It's better than Leah, who was weak on the eyes, right? Right. Sometimes you, you get those people who are a little weak in the eyes, right? Like, is she blind? No, she's ugly, right? But we have Esther here, uh, and Esther's like, she had a lovely form, right? She was pleasant to look at. She was a good-looking woman. She has a, Esther, by the way, is her Babylonian Persian name. Um, you know, her, her actual uh, Jewish name is recorded here, Hadassah, uh, which means myrtle, right? It's a, right? And so like, um, but, 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 but she's a Jewish woman who's good looking. And when the king is going and having his troops and friends round up hotties, she's picked up, right? By the way, I don't know. You're supposed to call them hotties. I'm not sure if that's a biblically correct term or not, right? But the good looking woman of the empire, that might be better, okay? So he rounds up the good looking woman of the empire. She is in that group. She's brought to the harem, which has to be absolutely terrifying, right? Like your whole life, you've been living in a fairly small cloister of uh, ethnically similar people to you. They probably had little you know, areas where the Jews would all hang out inside of um, the, the Persian Empire. And she was scooped up, brought over, um, dropped into the middle of this craziness. And as she was being taken, uh, Mordecai gave her a word of wisdom, her um, cousin who raised her and said, hey... Esther, don't tell anyone where you're from. Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. Don't, don't give anyone that ammunition. We don't know why he said that. It could have been that there was already some anti-Semitism going on in that, in, in that culture at that time. It's going to become full-blown by the end of this story, so it's very possible that there was already an anti-Jewish sentiment. It's amazing to me how often there's anti-Jewish sentiment across the world. Right? It is a worldwide phenomenon. It's been going on as long as the nation of Israel has been established, as long as God has put his hand on them. It is a worldwide It is wild to me how that was, it was the case in Egypt. It's going to be the case here in Persia. Right? We know recently right, that's been the case over there. We can look in Germany. Right? It, it's consistently people look for the destruction of God's people, and consistently God uh, 
protects, provides, at least uh, leaves a remnant of them uh, for, the, for their continued success. But Mordecai, sensing what was going on in the world at the time, says, don't tell anyone where you're from. Just, just go in there as Esther, be Esther, and, and I'll check on you. And he checks on her every day. And I can't imagine, like in my mind, I've tried this week to like rationalize, what would I be feeling? What would I be thinking? What would my mind be when I'm scooped up, taken and put in a room full of people, and I know the only place this goes is somewhere terrible? There's no good outcome for Esther in this situation. She has been scooped up. The wicked schemes of man have, have contrived together to take her from her family and to put her in a place where the only end is bad. Right? There is a date with Ahasuerus at the end of this where she's going to um, lose part of who she is. She's going to lose part of what, what it was that, that made her attractive to him to begin with. And at the end of that, the best case scenario is he says, hey, I like you enough, I'll keep you around. But the most likely scenario is she's going to be shoved into another group of women and she's going to live the rest of her life in solitude. Well provided for, well fed, well cared for, but absolutely void of any companionship, void of any relationships, just shoved aside. It is a terrible place to be. But in the midst of that, in the midst of the terrible place to be, Esther is finding favor along the way, right? She gets in there. The leader of the, um, the harem is a guy named Haggai. And for some reason, Haggai finds favor, or Esther finds favor in his eyes. It's the same story. Read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? Joseph goes. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in the house of, of the chief um, I don't know, chief of justice, maybe Potiphar. He's living in Potiphar, the chief of the guards. He's living in Potiphar's house. He's serving Potiphar, and he's elevated quickly from just a regular like servant boy to the second in command of his house, which is a substantial role in that place. Then he gets knocked back down. He's put into prison, and instantly, like within uh, weeks maybe, all of a sudden he's second in command of the prison. Right? Then he gets out of prison. He goes to work for the Pharaoh, second in command, and all the way along, all along the way, Right, the Bible says he found favor, he found favor, he found favor. God has a special way of providing and protecting those who are his that he cares for. Esther was getting some divine providential protection from God that she would find favor. And she did. She was elevated. She was moved forward in this process. She was given the best uh, of what she could have. But the truth is the best of what she could have was still a pretty miserable existence. And here's, here's where, where we are today, guys. Look, there are people scheming wicked things right now. That's a true story. There are wicked people scheming wicked things. right? We can, I can't even get my head around everything that people do that's wicked in this world today. And the sad truth is the wicked schemes of those people affect all of us. We live in a broken, fallen, messed up world. And just like Esther, a lot of times we are trapped in the midst of it, and there is no good way forward. There's not. There's not a positive forward outcome. There's not something out there like, man, this is going to work out well. Wicked schemes of people affect all of us. And so what do we do when we're caught in the middle of these wicked schemes? We, we do exactly what Esther did, right? We just walk the path God has put before us. Esther is not laid out here as morally upright or righteous, by the way. She's just someone in a bad situation who has to walk the path that's in front of them, trusting that somewhere along the way God's going to intervene and do something good. 
And so if you find yourself today in a dark place, you find yourself in a situation that may not be of your own creation. Maybe it is. Maybe you created the dark situation that you're in. But maybe it's not. Right? Maybe you're a victim of a bad situation where someone behaved wickedly, wrongly. In the path in front of you, there's not a, there's not a way out. Just keep walking through. God is good, and he can put things together that we don't see. Right, I've walked with people as they've gone through uh, divorces and bad situations. Sometimes you have an infidelity situation, right, where, where one spouse gives up on the marriage, goes after someone else, and then when you have the attempted reconciliation, that spouse is like, I don't want to reconcile. I like the new lady, right? Or it could be the new guy, right? I'm, I'm blaming guys right now. It could be the new guy, right? I've seen it both ways, right? But, but in that situation, you're advising the one who is, who is caught in a terrible situation, their spouse has abandoned them, walked out, and I'm looking for something else, seeking after another partner, seeking after something else altogether, and they have tried to put it together. Right? They, 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 they've done all the right steps. They've sought counseling. They've sought good wisdom. They've sought guidance. They've sought friends. They've worked together. They pray for their spouse. They do all the things that they can do. What do they do in that situation? And the answer is you just walk forward. Because wicked situations... They affect all of us. Sometimes, like, the answer, like, it's so wonderful. Like, if the answer, like, the, the easy biblical answer works. Right? I've done marriage counseling. That, 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 that's beautiful. Right? You get a couple together. They're this far apart. And all of a sudden, they both recognize, like, dang, we screwed up. And there's repentance, and they come back together. They say, let's try to put this thing back together. And they do the hard work of trying to put that thing back together. And it's not easy to do that. Right? It's, and, it, and the damage is still there. But like all of a sudden, at the end of it, you can hold it up as like a display of the testimony of God's faith. Look at what God did here. He put this thing back together. But a lot of people, they don't get that story. Because one spouse doesn't want that. They want to keep pursuing wickedness. They want to keep pursuing after something else. They want to keep pursuing after uh, whatever it is that, that's created the division in the relationship. The other person is left holding the bag. What do you tell that person? You tell them, just keep walking. Right? God has not abandoned you in the middle of your dark times. He sees you in the midst of your suffering. The situation you're in, whether it's your fault or not, is real. And we can't pretend like it's not. We can't imagine that it's something else. It is the real situation that you're in. You can't wish it was something else. You can't make it something else. It is what it is. So you walk. Esther found herself in that situation. Wicked people had schemed a wicked, wicked plan. She was scooped up in the midst of that wicked plan, and so she just walked the path before her. Would it have been righteous for her to, uh, to try to run away? Would it have been righteous of her to, to do this or to do that? Yes, all of those things might have been righteous, but she, just, she was in a bad place with limited options, and she walked the path in front of her. Some of you have had to walk those paths. They're dark, they're lonely, they're hard, I just want you to know you're not alone in the midst of those. God is with you in the midst of those. Now, side note, addendum, free of charge. If you are the cause of the wickedness, and if your repentance can bring light back into a broken situation, that is the path that God has called you to walk. Right? It's not, well, I've already cheated on my wife. I better just keep going. No. No, you're called to righteousness, you're called to holiness, you're called to a right living, right? But if you find yourself in a situation 
and there's no path out. Turn to God. Trust in God and walk. Esther kept walking this situation. She found favor along the way. Verse 12, it says, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of beautifying, six months uh, with oil of myrrh and six months of spices and ointments, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem and to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return and go into the second harem in custody of Shagaz. Shoshgaz. That's a good name. We don't have a lot of kids named Shoshgaz for some reason. I don't understand that. Uh, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go in to see the king again unless he delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So this is what happens when it's your turn. Twelve months you spend, by the way, in harem one uh, doing oil and myrrh treatments to make your skin luscious and radiant and beautiful. And then six months of like Spices. I don't know what that means, by the way. I read some things about what it could mean. doesn't sound pleasant. Basically, you're trying to infuse your skin with scent, right? Your actual skin. And we know this, right, when we barbecue, right? And then, like, you take a shower the next day. Take a shower the next day, and you're like, ooh, I smell like hickory, right? Like, they did that for six months, right? Burning spices and stuff to get it deep inside of them. That's just part of the essence of who they were. Right, so, so they do that, but if you don't win the contest of pleasing the king for the night, you get put in the second place and you don't get good to go see the king again unless he asks for you by name. Chance of him asking you for, by name, by the way, pretty low. Because how many women did he scoop up here? A lot. Right, so the chance of you getting, uh, getting the next call to come see the king again um, for the opportunity to again be defiled by him um, is, is fairly low. That may be God's grace, by the way, there um, for those women. But when Esther came, verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to see the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is uh, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Here's, here's what you have to know. Esther shows up, she walks in to see the king, uh, and they're given a chance to bring anything they want. I don't know what that means, by the way. Uh, I don't even want to know what tools you might bring for that specific trade that you're walking into. You can bring anything you want, though, for that night to go see the king. And all she does is she talks to the guy who has, fa who has favored her, this Haggai guy, says, what should I bring? He says, bring this, maybe, you know, a bottle of wine. I don't know what he asked for. Right, so he brings it, right, she brings it with him, with her to go see the king. And in that period of time when she was with the king, the king said, you will be my queen. And guys, I, again, it doesn't seem like a great outcome. Right? What would have been a great outcome, this is Matt now writing scripture, right? As she goes to see King Ahasuerus, he's like, you are beautiful, and he dies of a heart attack from seeing her. Right? That would have been a great outcome. That would have been a righteous outcome. A wicked man 
following a wicked scheme, getting judgment before destroying someone, right? That would have been a, a, what I think, again, not God, right? What I think would have been fair. Like, that looks like a just judgment on King Ahasuerus. But that's not the way uh, God was working, because God had other plans in mind. And guys, I don't always see it, right? When I walk through dark seasons, and I've been in some tough seasons, right? I've been through tough things in my marriage. I've been through tough things professionally, right? I don't, I don't talk about all the, the difficulties I've had in my life as much as maybe I should, just to kind of remind y'all, like, I'm, I'm like you. I've experienced garbage, terrible things from terrible people doing terrible things against me. I, I, I'm there. I'm with you. Right, but, but what I can see now on the back end of some of those major traumas in my life was God working his purposes in my life and the life of those around me. In the middle of it, it, it felt like hell had come to earth and attacked me. Right, it felt like my life was, was ending. If I, despair and despondency and darkness, and you don't even know the path that you're supposed to keep walking because things are so dark. But the truth is God has his eyes on his people. He knows them. He knows what's going on, and he knows the big plan that we don't see. You know, it's like, it's like we're, we see the back of the tapestry from very close, and it's ugly, and it's messy, but God is looking at it from the other side, and he has the whole perspective in mind about what he's trying to accomplish. So Esther's situation was bad. It was dark. She won uh, the affections of the king. She won the crown. They had a tax holiday. By the way, that sounds fun, right? Like new queen, no taxes? I could, I could go for that. Um, but, but she wins the, the king. She wins the ability to be queen. She's now Queen Esther instead of just some lady named Esther um, of dubious origins. She wins all these things. And the point there is that even in the midst of, uh, uh, of wicked times, God is working. Right? Even in the midst of the wicked times, God's working. We forget that, right? In the midst of our darkest seasons that God is not abandoning us. You know, we have the, the fairly uh, like over, overused, overplayed footprints in the sand poem, right? And the idea is like, you know, I see two sets of footprints in the beach, and then there's only one, and my like, God, you abandoned me in my dark times when things are bad and everything's bad, you abandoned me. And the poem says, no, that's when I carried you, but that's the truth, right? God isn't gone in our dark seasons. He's closer in our dark seasons. We're just so blinded by the darkness that we don't see it, right? Because we're in the midst of the darkness. I want you to know if you're in the middle of a dark season right now, God sees you. Right? If your finances are a wreck and you don't see a way out, you made bad decisions that have put you in a bad place, God sees you. Right, if you're despairing and despondent and worried about the future of our world because of an election that's going to take place in four weeks and you don't see a way out if, if person X wins or person Y wins, that the world's going to come to an end and you're just worried about that beyond all things, I want you to know God sees you. You're not alone. Right, if you're worried about your marriage, if you're in the middle of a, a troubled, struggling marriage and you're here at church today and you're smiling and acting like everything's okay, but it's not okay. I've been there. I've been at church on Sundays when it's not okay. Sitting next to my wife, smiling, looking happy. It's not okay. If that's you here today, I want you to know God sees you. You're not abandoned in the dark times. God is near to you when you struggle. Even in wicked times, God is working. And sometimes that work is ugly. 
from our perspective. And sometimes it's painful from our perspective. And sometimes we, 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 we fight against what we see God is doing. I just want you to know God is working even when it's dark. And guys, the story of Esther looks dark. But this is like the high watermark for a while. Because it gets worse. Like this right here of a, of a lady being kidnapped, forced um, to go spend a night with a man who, who has the power to execute her or to banish her or to do whatever he wants because he has ultimate power and authority on an earthly realm looks like the low point in this book, but it gets worse and God is working all through it. God works when it's dark out. right? When sometimes we're in the midst of the darkness ourselves. If that's you today, I want you to know he's near to you. You're not walking alone. You feel abandoned. Right? You, you pray, your prayers bounce off the ceiling, you, you cry, no one sees, no one hears, no one cares. God cares about you. No matter where you've been, no matter what puts you in that situation. Right? What Esther did in those verses, 15 through 18, not righteous. Whatever it was, almost certainly not righteous. The path she had to walk, darkness, depravity, terrible decisions. God was with her through that. And he made something out of it. He put her in a position that she's going to be able to affect situations for millions of people because she walked through the darkness, trusting him. I want you to trust God today, church. In the midst of your darkness, I want you to trust God today. God is with you. He's near. It, it, it stinks. Uh, honestly, we would, we would all choose rosy paths every day. But there are wicked people making wicked schemes, and it forces us into wicked situations. And when we're there, I want you to know God is working when it's dark. God sees you in the dark, and his purposes are not thwarted by wicked people making wicked schemes. Uh, just real quick uh, on the election that's going to take place in four weeks, God's purpose, his big purpose, is not thwarted by this election. I don't care. I don't. Y'all do. Some of you really care. I know. That's great. Be politically active, vote, whatever. God bless you. But God the ultimate architect of the universe, the one who keeps human history in his hands, this thing, it's not going to affect his plans. It's not. It may affect your life for the next four years. It, and by the way, I say it may affect your life. It may. may not, honestly. Every election is the most important election until the next one. But guys, God's big plan is going to be worked out. Trust him today. Trust him with your dark places. Trust him as you walk in those places because Jesus Christ walked in those dark places too. He walked a lonely path up to a cross that he did not deserve because wicked schemes of wicked people put him there. And he laid on the cross, continuing down the path that he could have gotten off of at any time he wanted. Anytime he chose to, he could have come down. He could have regulated on the people. But he walked the path because the picture 
of salvation was in his view. And he knew that you needed him to die in your place. And so he did what only he could do. He died on the cross so you could receive eternal life. He walked the dark path so that you could know what it's like to have a God who loves you in the midst of your dark path. So you can know that your salvation can be found and secure in the God who has already experienced the darkness of humanity. Jesus walked that path. He came out on the other side of that path, raised again, promising us new life with him. Guys, that's our story. Dark past, dark ways, doesn't look right, broken down, the society is against him, everything is wrong, and then we look with Easter eyes and we say, God still won. He still won. The the, the Messiah was crucified, dead, buried. The darkest of dark times, literally the darkest of dark times, the sun was blotted out for a period of hours. Darkness descended over the earth and God still won. Your marriage, your finances, your job, uh, your relationships with your kids, dark times possibly. But God is still working. And if he can beat death in the grave from the Messiah who's supposed to conquer everything and look like a beaten down, broken, battered man. And if he can come back from that and claim victory, he can claim victory in your marriage, in your finances, in your life. Walk the path before you. Trust that God is working in the dark because he's always working in the dark. Let's pray. Lord, I do love you so much. And I know that there are people here right now, people watching online right now who are in a dark spot. Lord, maybe it's not their marriage or their finances or their job 